Hello and welcome to another episode of The Uncovering. I am Sirius and today I'll be joined by my co-host Edward. We are delighted to welcome Colin Coleman, a senior fellow and lecturer at Yale University and former CEO of Sub-Saharan Africa Goldman Sachs. This episode will be primarily focused on African economics, emerging markets and more specifically South African political influence. Hi Colin, it is a great honour and pleasure to have you on The Uncovering and we thank you for affording us with this opportunity. How's things over in South Africa with the current situation? Hi, it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, South Africa is a, a country that's, um, I, I would say, quite challenged at this point in time with a, a number of issues that are, you know, one, one is struggling with. Pre-COVID, the economy uh, was experiencing a lot of difficulty with high unemployment and very low growth. But with COVID, you know, that economic contraction has been very deep and sharp, expected to be around, you know, 7.2% contraction in 2020. Yeah. And the unemployment rate is likely to go up to nearly 50% by the end of the year, which is in a terrible combination. You've also had gender-based violence issues in the country, and there's been a surge of corruption around the COVID procurement process which has caused, you know, a combination of headaches, let's say, for South Africans. Uh, so it's a very, very yeah. tough uh, time at the moment. Yeah. I wanted to start by asking you um, about your time at Goldman Sachs. Could you please explain a little bit about your role within the firm? Yeah, so um, I joined Goldman Sachs in 2000 and I left at the end of last year. I uh, was recruited really to start uh, the business in South Africa, which I did, uh, and you know built both a South African and a Sub-Saharan Africa business. So by the end, I you know made managed director in uh, 2002, partner in two t- 2010, and was CEO of the Sub-Saharan African division of Goldman Sachs firm wide, you know across all the divisions of the firm, and. So I was sort of one of the emerging market leaders of Goldman Sachs uh, and helped to champion the expansion out of what I call the G3 countries where the hubs of Goldman Sachs really were. And so, you know, Goldman Sachs is now a kind of global firm with a emerging market penetration in many places. And, you know, I guess my fingerprints are on um, the African uh, business. Uh, but also the inter-emerging market transactions because in my time I paid particular attention to the rise of China and did a huge amount of investment of time and then several transactions that came out of it, you know, kind of most notably the ICBC investment into Standard Bank, which was $5.5 billion in 2008, uh, just pre the global financial crisis, which was uh, a landmark transaction you know, in emerging markets as a whole, the largest deal that had happened outside of China at the time. So, you know, we can talk about it, but uh, it was a very intense and interesting time building the business from really scratch to a um, not insignificant business by the time I left. And um, could you please tell us a little bit about the transition from working for Goldman in an investment bank to then becoming more of an academic, a senior fellow and lecturer at Yale University? Sure. You know, well, look, I had um, prior to Goldman Sachs, I was at Standard Bank and then JP Morgan. 
Uh, so I was really in investment banking for 25 years. Uh, and you don't come out of that and just sort of, you know, uh, establish your kind of independent voice. So, you know, from, from my point of view, Yale was a great platform for me to do that. Uh, so, you know, I pretty much start, I left in December 2019, Goldman Sachs, and I started in January at Yale, uh, taught the first semester. Obviously, COVID interrupted uh, on, uh, you know, the in-person teaching, but we finished the semester online. And I'm about to go back uh, to New York uh, and commence teaching the fall semester at the end of August. Uh, and that will complete my tenure at Yale, uh, which has been very interesting and uh, quite rewarding. During your time at Yale, you spent most of your time at Jackson Institute for Global Affairs, informing students about Africa and its economic development. My first question revolving around this topic is that due to the long-term impact of colonialism on Africa's development, how important is Africa's troubled history in understanding the current pandemic and situation? Well, it's vital. I actually start the course. The, it's a 14-class course, effectively. And the first class of the 14 focuses exactly on the role of colonialism, in particular, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and we have readings from a book called King Leopold's Ghost. King Leopold's Ghost talks about the, the king of Belgium who colonized uh, DRC and effectively ran a rubber plantation and oil export business uh, and was famous for cutting off hands of, uh, of people, enslaving them. And it was, you know, it all recorded quite vividly in this book that I referred to. But, you know, you have to understand the, the legacy and where people come from in order to kind of get your minds around what has happened. And, you know, essentially, if you look at the last 20 years, Africa's turnaround has been remarkable, uh, you know, <clears throat> with an average of 5% growth rates per annum since then, but slowed down by various commodity problems, the global financial crisis and now COVID. And the reality is still one that is, uh, I pointed out in a lecture I gave, that is quite concerning because you have effectively 17% of the world's population with 3% of the world's GDP. Uh, and that population growth from here on is going to outstrip everywhere else. And in fact, by the turn of the century, uh, this century, uh, Africa will account for 40% of the world's population. Uh, and if we don't pick up the growth rates, you know, the share of GDP at that point in time uh, yeah. will, will be extremely low, maybe as low as 10%. And if 10% of the GDP is across 40% of the world's population, any person can work it out. You don't have to be a genius to know that that's a recipe for a humanitarian crisis and conflict. Yes. My second question concerns whether African economies are still largely commodity-driven economies and whether they have the capability to embrace the fourth industrial revolution. I mean, many of them still seem to be exposed to volatile global commodity prices and currencies. So commodities are, are, are obviously a natural nature's gift to Africa. Yeah. Um, and, and there's a variety of different commodities. So there's some oil producers, some oil, non-oil producers. But South Africa is a non-oil producer, for example, is endowed with, you know, 80% of the world's platinum, palladium, uh, and a very significant chunk of the world's gold. You know, 
as, as one example. Uh, but that is kind of a legacy. No economies can really survive on that basis. So, you know, a Africa developing its agriculture and then, you know, effectively some of its manufacturing capacity, you know, is, is the wave of the future. Ethiopia, you know, through uh, its industrial parks and special export zones is trying to attract, you know, and displace Chinese uh, manufacturing or low-cost low labor and uh, tax incentives and so on. And it's very smart in the way it's going about that. But, you know, if you've seen many of the reports, including from McKinsey and people like that, you know, effectively the demographic dividend of Africa is extremely strong because you've got 1.2 billion people with very little uh, resources. And, you know, that, that basically means that it's a very large market for, for goods, for consumer goods, food, consumer goods, and so on and so forth. Uh, and so you've seen, you know, a significant number of companies that have invested in expanding into Africa. There's some setbacks, for example, ShopRite has just announced that they're pulling out of Nigeria, which, you know, is really a bad news uh, development for Africa because they were one of the biggest investors in Angola, in Nigeria, and so on. And it's, and it's not, uh, not a good uh, situation for them. But you know, there's a big leap from what I'm, I've said to you is the consumer story and the resources story to the fourth industrial revolution, which is your question. The fourth industrial revolution really requires a sophisticated industrial and manufacturing base that, that Africa, not even South Africa, I think is ready for and a very strong digital, digital economy. So, you know, Africa has got to move much faster not to get left behind. Uh, the developments in the world. There are some encouraging signs with regards to data centers, some technology development, you know, the MPESAs of the world, which is this mobile payment system in Kenya that's been a groundbreaking development uh, through Safaricom in Kenya. But I would say it's exceptional rather than the rule that you're seeing uh, technology leading the way in Africa. You know, it's there are these stories, there are the digital stories, uh, but, you know, they are exceptional rather than the rule. So, you know, Africa has to get its act together. And in your opinion, what are the African countries we should be paying particularly close attention to in the next kind of 10 to 15 years? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the big swing countries in Africa, you know, obviously South Africa, Nigeria, and Egypt, uh, and the sort of second layer, I would say, is Angola, uh, Kenya, and Ethiopia. Um, you know, they're different countries that one has to pay attention to for various different reasons. Mozambique, for example, has had this incredible gas find, this high-quality gas field on its northern coastline, uh, and, you know, it's a GDP of $10 billion dollars. Uh, the investment required to develop that gas field is about $50 billion, so, you know, five times the GDP. So it'll absolutely transform the country. So you should watch a country like Mozambique, watch a country like Angola, where they're going through their own unwinding of the capture by the DeSantos family of uh, Angola's revolution. You know, South Africa, one has to watch because it's the key industrial country in Africa. Nigeria with the biggest population uh, and big oil resources. 
uh, is important. Sorry, that is the African hardy dar in my garden uh, that is, you know, wanting to over uh, to make its, itself felt in the program. Um, so um, there are many of these stories in Egypt, obviously, which is kind of gripped by a military style government. But, uh, you know, these are all different countries for different reasons that need to be watched. Ethiopia, you know, which is experimenting with this, this industrialization, a big population, interesting country. And I want to pivot a little bit now to talking about um, foreign involvement in Africa. And do you believe that a country like China represents a, a threat or a key ally to African countries? And is the Belt and Road Initiative primarily a self-interested geopolitical move? So I did a, a very um, uh, big speech at Yale at the end of February that you might want to put on as a link to the podcast. Um which it was basically the U.S. versus China in Africa, the battle for Africa. And, you know, what one demonstrates in a lot of detail in that speech is just how strategic and long-term China is in terms of the way it's, uh, the way it's attacking the African opportunity and positioning themselves as a partner and an ally for Africa. Obviously, that, uh, that is is controversial because some people see it as a a second imperial wave um, or colonizing wave. I don't see it that way. I think that China is very aware of of the kind of history and the pitfalls. But, you know, they're a massively powerful, the second most powerful economy in the world. Uh, And many of these African countries are extraordinarily weak. So their ability to uh, negotiate effectively with the Chinese is somewhat limited. And I think that's the the power imbalance is what leads to these problems. Uh, But essentially, you know, China is investing huge amounts of uh, financing in infrastructure, uh, is investing people and skills, uh, looking at foreign direct investment. What was clear from my speech, though, is the United States, uh, many people think, are not present at the African uh, table. In fact, they are very present. They're present in foreign direct investment. They're present in aid. They're present in diplomacy. They're present in the military sphere. But they, the danger is that they get outstripped by, you know, the tremendous long-term strategic focus and well-resourced focus of the Chinese. So, um, yeah, I think what one is seeing is, in general. Uh, an environment where the world is aware that Africa is a major opportunity, but it's also a major threat. It's an opportunity because if it grows at the rates that I've been uh, talking about, five to six percent GDP growth per annum, you know, in the next 40 years, Africa is going to be the largest growth opportunity in the world. And multinationals want to be part of that. So you've got a lot of the consumer companies, you've got a lot of the tech companies and so on paying increasing attention to Africa. But on the other hand, you know, if Africa, uh, through COVID, through the global financial crisis, through commodity price disruptions, fails to rise to the challenge, you know, you have this mismatch between people and resources. That's going to export terrorism. It's going to export migration, people, and create huge amounts of conflict and become a destabilizing force for the world. So it's really important the world leans in 
And when I say the world, I mean the countries, G, the G20, the multilateral institutions like the World Bank, the IMF, and the multinational companies, uh, because the more that you've got a combined cooperative force in the world helping Africa move forward, the more likely the opportunities will be realized rather than the threats. In reality, it's probably going to be a mixture of both. And, and do you think that international organizations like the IMF and World Bank have generally been positive for emerging economies, or do their loans often come with overly harsh and, and short-sighted conditions? Well, you know, the, the, the structural conditions relating to IMF bailouts is legendary. So, you know, the South Africans, for example, are extremely concerned about loss of sovereignty if they were to have structural adjustment loans. The loans that the $4.2 billion loan that they've just taken on for COVID is uh, a loan without that sort of uh, structural adjustment conditionality. So, uh, so I don't think it's in the same category uh, and was approved for that reason in the domestic environment. But, you know, the structural adjustment processes are co- controversial because on the one hand, they oftentimes are dealing with structural problems that are in the economies. You know, so talk about Greece post uh, the global financial crisis. The reality is a lot of the Greek imbalances built up over many, many years through inability of the, the Greek government on their own to undertake reforms or a lack of willingness to undertake reforms that they should have done on their own, including to the electricity utility that I covered when I was at JP Morgan in the late 90s. And, you know, so when, people, when countries don't undertake the reforms on their own because for whatever reason, politically or whatever, it's difficult for them to do it or they don't have the will to do it, and they reach these crisis points and then they go to the IMF because they have to get credit lines and the IMF impose these structure adjustment programs and they basically do the work of the governments in cleaning up the mess, but in a much more ruthless way. And then the countries have lost their sovereignty. So if the countries do what they should be doing, then they shouldn't get themselves into the position that they need the IMF. But if they need the IMF, then the IMF has this problem that they have to undertake uh, the kind of reforms that will create sustainable growth in the countries and fiscal consolidation, which will, which will effectively mean that these countries are less likely to come back a second and a third time, as is the case with Argentina and, and, and these kind of countries. So, you know, it depends on which side of the table you sit as to what, what that reality means. Yes. I mean, one common characteristic of many emerging markets is often the scale of government involvement in their markets and supporting local champions. How significant is this factor when working with big companies as part of an investment bank in emerging markets? So, uh, I mean, the idea of local champions is often at loggerheads with attracting foreign direct investment because if you have large local banks, large local telecom companies, large local consumer companies, uh, large local miners, you know, those guys don't particularly want to see the government attracting the foreign direct investment competitors. So, you know, there's this, you know, very large debate about product concentration and monopolies in economies. And even in the United States, let's say, you know, the big tech companies, you know, the recent conversations in the, in the Senate and Congress about 
you know, should these companies be broken up? Do they are they monopolies? Are they are they good for the United States economy or bad? And so, you know, powerful companies will always attract the criticism that they are closing down competition, that they are closing down new entrants, that they're bad for small and micro enterprise and therefore bad for job creation. And obviously the government, say, for example, the South African government, they want competition. They want job creation. They want small and micro enterprise. They want, uh, they want uh, market innovation and foreign direct investment but they also want their local companies to do well. So it's a little bit of, you know, wanting your, yeah. w- wanting your, you know, your, your toast buttered on both sides, you know? So it is a trade-off. I mean, I think often from our emerging market experience, local champions give cu- countries, you know, local large companies give countries uh, gravitas. They give them, you know, authority, you don't mess with the top 20 companies in South Korea, for example, you know, I tend to think that local champions are good for countries in terms of giving them uh, leverage and power to deal with global competitors. And then, you know, you've got these global companies that are very good for innovation, skill development, financing, and so on and so forth, say a General Electric or, or, you know, one of those companies but you want to have a balance is is what i i guess yes i mean moving to a more specific country and closer to home south africa has suffered from large-scale corruption and very low growth rates over the last number of years do you believe that the changes taking shape in the political environment will enable south africa to outshine the continent's fastest growing economies um well i I guess you know what you're asking is what what are the prospects for south africa's recovery you know, I've just published, I gave a, a talk um, at University of Cape Town for the Vice Chancellor's Open Lecture, which is available online. And I'd encourage your readers to, who are more interested in South Africa to, to get it and listen to it. Because what I talk about is something I touched on right at the beginning, the challenges in South Africa. I talk about then a 10-point plan to deal with the various aspects of the economy. So we have this unemployment problem. I call for a basic income grant to be funded in a fiscally neutral way. I demonstrate how that can be done through recutting the way in which current taxes are allocated. So, you know, removing certain deductions for uh, the wealthy and the middle class to fund the basic income grant. I call for a war on corruption on tax evasion and a variety of forms of criminal activity. And then I call for a series of growth steps that includes fixing the state utility ESCOM, which has been a major drag uh, on economic performance, uh, on unleashing smaller micro enterprises, on creating these uh, special export zones, not unlike the Ethiopians, to attract foreign direct investment and create a lot more momentum around manufacturing and uh, I call for an end to spatial uh, apartheid planning because much of the uh, apartheid plan is, you know, physical planning framework has not been broken. So you've got, you know, poor black people living far out of the city, spending lots of money on transport to get back, getting to work, yeah. which is not there. And so I've, I've called for densification of the cities in South Africa so that you get more people in the center of the cities spending less money on transport and living better lives. 
So I, I, you know, I think the 10 point plan is some of my thoughts on how one can effectively get back to 3% growth rates in the short term and in the longer term, 5% growth rates, which by the year 2030 will then bring our unemployment rate down below 20%. It's sitting at the moment, the narrow unemployment rate is sitting at least over 30% at last count, but probably more like 35%. So that you have to bring the unemployment rate down to get proper participation that will stimulate activity in the economy and you'll get the flywheel of growth going. Lastly, I just wanted to touch on um, the report, Two Decades of Freedom, that you published in, in 2013 that spoke about South Africa's progress since 1994. I just wanted to ask um, what changes you'd make now in kind of an updated version that would be more like two and a half or three decades of freedom. Yeah. So again, the UCT lecture was in a sense exactly that, an update on that. And, you know, clearly what's happened, I, I published that report you referred to basically at the end of the first Zuma term of office. And it was, you know, it became much more apparent, uh, the state capture campaign that he was on and the disruption and negative consequences that his, his administration had. So that by 2017, when Sir Ramaphosa took over from Jacob Zuma, you know, uh, four years after that report was written, it become very clear that growth had, you know, it's very significantly dropped. I think the growth rate from 2013 till present day is like 1%, and our population growth is 1.5%. So looking back from 2013, the situation looked quite constructive, uh, you know, and there'd been a lot achieved, which can't be taken away. But the situation since 2013 has materially worsened. And then President Ramaphosa is doing what he can on two major fronts. The one is to end state capture and corruption, and the other is to turn the economy around. And he was making some moves in the latter which obviously have now been put seriously backwards by the COVID crisis. Uh, so, you know, South Africa, as I said at the beginning, is in a very, very tough position with effectively low growth, you know, systemic corruption, uh, you know, some of the issues around social um, violence, you know, particularly as it faces women and children communities, and then low growth and you know, but on the other hand, there's a very strong architecture of constitutionality, free press, civil society, very strong business sector, very strong financial system. Uh, so for many reasons, people will back South Africa to effectively turn things around and get going again. And, you know, I would certainly be one that has confidence in President Ramaphosa to do that. Once again, thank you so much for coming on and it has been a great pleasure speaking to you today. My pleasure. All the best to you and your listeners.